all three of my guests here today have worked both in the private and in the public sector. They collectively have more than 25 years experience in, in the media industry, so I think that they're well placed to join today's discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome to my right, Mishlatsi Gallens. I beg your pardon, <laughs> Mishlatsi Mishlatsi, who is the editor-in-chief at Eyewitness News and chairperson of SANEF, the South African National Editors Forum. Next to Mishlatsi is Portia Kubui, the news editor of Kaya FM 95.9 and SANEF council member. And next to Portia is Stephen Curtis, our SAFM Sunrise anchor, I say our very proudly, and our full view anchor on DSTV channel 404, um, as well as the former presenter of uh, the Midday Report on 702 and a journalist par excellence field reporter. Um, Portia and Mishlatsi have cut their throats, their names in, in, in field reporting as well. So they come from a, a real hierarchy of working their way up in the newsroom. So we really are very honored to have um, uh, the three of you with us today. So we've come a long way uh, with the media in South Africa. You've, prior to 94 was the underground media where journalists had to work really hard to expose the atrocities of apartheid. You even have those journalists who were embedded with the system of apartheid, often referred to as the Stratcom journalists. Then came 94, and we had to open ourselves up to the rest of the world and begin to tell the story of a society beaten, bruised, but not defeated, and rising to the occasion of a democratic state. We've heard post-94 of words like blacklists, of words like political interference, of words like embedded journalists who don't announce that they're embedded. Democratic South Africa journalism has come with its own successes, but there have been a lot more challenges. So we get straight into the conversation of what it is to be reporting in a democratic state. And I'd like to start with you, um, Mishlatsi. Um, you are now sitting in a position of editor-in-chief at EWN at Prime Media, Prime Media. How would you describe the pressures you face currently in your newsroom? Easy one there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, we've seen uh, what has been happening in the industry, and we won't sit and pretend that we haven't been affected. Um, the state of the newsroom report tells us that uh, 10 years ago we had 20,000 journalists, I mean 10,000 journalists, and today we're sitting at 5,000 journalists. I think all of us have seen our newsroom grow smaller and smaller every single day. Uh, we've seen... Um, what this phenomenon of the juniorization of uh, the newsroom. And that is a reality for many of us. Uh, but also, we also live in a country where the headline and the main focus changes almost every second. Um, and um, every day as editors, we have the difficult choices to make in terms of which story do we get to cover and which one do we not get to cover. Uh, we are now a multi-platform uh, news institution where Previously, uh, when I started as a journalist, I was a radio journalist, and that is what my focus was. Today, we are radio journalists, we are online journalists, we are multimedia journalists. We have to deliver across all of those uh, platforms, but also still be innovative, where we are trying out podcasts, we are trying out video features, we are trying all of those things. And 
it's the challenge of the journalist of today where just being good in one particular field is just not enough uh, and will not get you um, a shoe in inside of a newsroom. Um, we are also an industry in general, I think, where despite um, being one of the lucky countries in Africa, where we are constitutionally protected in terms of the work that we do, we continuously face um, the wrath of those who are against what we do, whether it's politicians, whether it's unfortunately people within the media, whether it's uh, communities that we're supposed to be serving. Um, we are finding ourselves under attack increasingly. So, you know, um, the challenges of before 94 were very different, but I think in the 25 years and speaking now, uh, we are facing the challenges that technology has brought us, the disruption of the Facebook and Google, um, fake news, um, and all of those things. So it's a very different but still very challenging environment, and we are all trying to swim through and see if we can make it on the other side. And we are not the only ones. I mean, uh, these challenges that I've noted are not only particular to South Africa, but they're quite... Um, they are there when you look internationally as well. Uh, those challenges have been there. The one last thing that I would like to mention is that we are also living in a country where we have an economy that is in dire straits and not growing. And most of our financial models are based on uh, dependence, are dependent on advertising revenue. And we all know that when um, times are tough, the first things that companies cut back on is advertising revenue. Uh, that's the one thing. And then we are trying to grow ourselves in this digital space, but we are finding that 85% of advertising revenue is going to Facebook and Google, and they're literally eating our lunch. Um, and, and, and that is the reality that we can't run away from. And these are companies that are not taxed in South Africa, uh, but continue to make money out of us. And people, we are seeing... Uh, circulation numbers drop. I mean, I argue that if people have to choose between buying bread and newspaper, mm. no guessing what they'll actually mm. choose. And that is the reality of the industry that we're in. And internationally, there seems to be no solutions. And we are none the wiser also in South Africa. And that's why I say that we are trying to swim through and see what comes out on the other side. Mm. Thanks, Mishlatsi. Um, Portia, you, you've gone from public, well, uh, public broadcaster to the private sector. Mishlatsi's brought up a, a lot of issues. But the reality that our industry is facing now is retrenchments, is budget cuts to have to do a lot more with far less journalists. You've heard the number move from 10,000 to 5,000. What are the challenges you've, you've experienced both in the public and private sector? So I think um, the, the major challenges in, in the, well, the public sector, of course, is the SABC. That's, mm. that's, that's where I worked. Um, and, you know, I worked at the SABC at the time where um, journalists were increasingly becoming under pressure um, political pressure and political interference, but it was something that was not openly talk, talked about. Um, and by the time I left the SVC in 2016, it was gaining momentum. And um, the, the challenges were, were really also similar in the sense that um, we worked with small teams and uh, we had to lo work long hours and we often have to double up. You know, and it, it becomes even more, more uh, pressing when we work on like morning, uh, morning television, 
or morning radio because uh, it simply means that you've got to make sure before you go home in the evening that what you're going to be tackling tomorrow morning is, is well prepped. And mm. so it really takes a toll on journalists. And I also think that one of the things that really take a toll on journalists is not having time to do research. And that really affects how we put our content together. Um, and it's really not different uh, um, from working in, in, in a commercial space. Um, but I think it's even more pressing in a commercial space um, because, you know, as Mathatsi said, with the economy not doing so well, advertising is a problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, because news is not a, profits, uh, it's not a profit center but really a cost center, it will be impacted if um, there were to be retrenchments. Mm. But also, you know, in terms of, of, of the team in a newsroom, it often means that uh, people have to work long hours um, and people have to double up again and do extra, like, you, you know, and really work hard to make sure mm -hmm. that uh, things happen. And in, 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 a, in, a, in a music um, radio station where there's very little time allocated to news, I mean, at Car FM, our bulletin is like four minutes long. So... You know, when you have that burning story, that great story that you really want to tell and you want to tell in detail, um, and um, you expect it to do four stories minimum, so it means that each story is like one minute. Yeah. You really can't do much um, with, with one minute. But, you know, also the, challenge, the other challenge really is, is that um, with the juniorization of newsrooms, uh, there's very little time to coach and mentor journalists because they're always on the run. Um, and, and, and coupled with the fact that, unfortunately, we chase sensation. And um, it often means that journalists are out in the field because we want to have the story because we can't be beaten up and stuff like that. Although at KFM we say that we're not a breaking news station. So when the story comes in, we really just really try and assess whether we should be chasing that story or whether we should be doing more research in the story in terms of making sure that when we really broadcast the story, it's worth our listener. Mm. Uh, and I think that the, the major, major challenge still remains having time to really coach um, journalists to, to have time for research so that we really beef up those stories. Yeah. Um, Stephen, uh, Portia's brought up something which I know is right down your alley. She talked about a four-minute bulletin, not doing much with four, four minutes. But on the contrary, there's a style of journalism that we're kind of forgetting, and that's the not the what, what you had mentioned to me earlier, not the packaged reporting, but the kind of putting all the sound bites within a single 40-second uh, sound bite. Uh, I, I, I know we're going really into the technicalities of it now, but in the 25 years, why are we trying to drop that kind of reporting? Yeah, I, I think several things. And I mean, and I mean first, and if I may just squeeze this in here, yeah. I think the importance of radio reporting is, I'll use this phrase, unseen. I think... I think without radio reporting, you almost don't have democracy because, I mean, and it's amazing to me, the figures haven't changed in the last 20 years of how many people only get their news from SABC radio stations. Um, you know, it is still largely the vast majority. Um, to put it another way, the person who controls those radio stations might control the outcome of an election. And that's why, there's, you know, if you look at it structurally, that shows you the importance of this. I'm not saying that that's happened. I'm just saying that what you have is a situation where the access to radio is absolutely crucial. Only 10% of the country is on Twitter. You know, it boils down to that. Um, and, and I would say several things to it. Firstly, 
probably the high point of radio reporting, if we try and be as objective as we can, which is very difficult because we all have skin in the game and we've all been involved, I would say there are probably two high points. The first has got to be the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reporting that the SABC team did in the late 90s. I don't think we've seen radio reporting better than that. And I think it shows you what quality content can be produced with a dedicated team. I think that's crucial and with proper resources and then crucially time. Um, I think there were other high points around court reporting, some of the major dramas. I mean, Maklatsi, I remember sitting with you in the Durban High Court during the trial of Shabir Sheikh. Um, <laughs> I think it's very easy, for example, to do radio reporting on the constitutional court well because radio reporting is at its best when it's about ideas. Um, and that means that you can really do that radio reporting very well. Um, in terms of packaging, and to get to your question, um, when I started radio reporting, it was literally a notebook and a pen in, against the world. That was it. And the best thing about that was, pre-Twitter, there was no way to know what anyone else was reporting. And there was no way for your boss to know what they were reporting, unless she listened. And she did all the time. But, but the point is that you were unharassed you could report what you said, and so long as it was subbed properly and edited properly by the bosses in Joburg, you were left alone. Now, you can go, go to a press conference, do what you think is the main story, and you're going to have someone on the phone within two seconds saying, but this person said this on Twitter, why didn't you include that? Well, I didn't include that because I just filed it, you know, I just filed. Um, and then aligned with that, we moved away from cell phone reporting. In other words, by that I mean the recorded voice that was obviously recorded from a phone you know, where you take mm. the person in, in three, two, one, okay? Um, to then record, recording it yourself into a mini disc or whatever technology you had, a Marantz or something, and then going back to the office and putting it together. So a classical report would start, it's slightly old-fashioned radio now, it would start with a dog barking and then the baby crying in the background, you'd have a bed of sound underneath it, and you'd have 40 seconds of really good material that a listener would want to listen to again. And the reason we could do that was there was investment in, investment in newsrooms in those days. Now, because we don't use mini discs in those machines, we all use our cell phones, and, and I'm sure that we all tell our people not to, but we all do it because it's so easy. We don't do the prepackaged voicer. And in a way, we're in the same situation with newspapers. As newspaper circulations diminish and as their revenues go down, they invest less in talent and in good writing, and so the circle continues. And really what radio, I would argue, needs to do to get away from all of this is create good, compelling content. But for that, you need a reporter to go to one Latuli House press conference for the day, and they need to do nothing else. I'm sure Clement would love to do <laughs> nothing else. Um, but it just can't be done. And that's, I think, some of the problems that, that radio reporting is facing. But I do think if you create, you know, no one, no one told, no research was used to sort of create the idea of an iPad. Someone had the idea and then people bought it. I think if you produce really good radio content and put it on a platform, I think people would still buy it. Mm. Mm. And by that I mean you'll attract advertising, but you have to invest in it. So some of the, thanks Stephen, some of the words that he's used, mini-disc, Morantz, then the cell phone. Um, not too long ago, in fact, just 25 years ago, we were real to real. Who remembers that? where there was no such thing as running into the studio with the breaking news story. You had to splice it, then you had your splicing tape, then you had to set up the reel. Remember that? Now at any given time you call somebody up and you, hey Presto, there's breaking news story on your, on your 
radio at the wireless. Right. Now we've got the advent of social media. Stephen um, tells us that 10% of our country are active on Twitter. It feels like it's 100%, but it's just 10%. Our conversations are centered in the urban and peri-urban center when it comes to social media. Largely, our citizenry in the rural area are not in the social media conversation. Are we ignoring them? Are we focusing on social media because we're in the center, we're in the, we're in the urban centers, that's where our newsrooms are centered? Um, and, and is the impact of technology changing the way we deliver the content? So, um, I hate Twitter. I'm only there because my job requires me to. <laughs> I actually think it's a vile space. And personally, because we've seen what it has done, especially to female journalists in the past year, and the, um, the group mob, uh, mentality, mob mentality of people just reading a headline and then going ahead and attacking individuals, right? It's supposed to be a space that where people are actually engaging, but most of the time it's actually used to spread misogyny, um, to basically try and silence people. Uh, it has been used to threaten people, and um, especially females, where they're basically sexualized. Mm. And, and, and that has been the downside of it. But there has been an upside to it as well, where uh, the recent story, I just forgot her name, the granny who was chained to mm. a bench, we were able to report on it because somebody actually put it up on social media and we were able to follow it up. So I think it's about finding that balance where I always say to my team, social media must be a tip-off. It must not dictate how we do journalism. We still need to do journalism, right? Um, a few years ago, I heard a story of how uh, the war between Sky News and BBC was defined in this way, that Sky News broke the stories and then people went to the BBC to confirm yeah. if it really happened. And I always say that we still need to remain the institutions where people go to to actually understand if this really happened and how did it happen and actually figure out what the truth is. We still need to do journalism. But sadly, a lot of our journalists and a lot of media houses are spending way too much time on social media and that is dictating our news content and that is dictating the conversations we're supposed to be having. And more painfully is that we're leaving behind the 90% that are actually not on Twitter. Mm. And um, I think all of us as newsrooms need to be very much aware of ourselves. The other reality is that when I walked into a newsroom in 1998 as an intern, you still had journalists that lived in townships. So they were still able to tell the stories of those areas that they actually come from. Sadly, with uh, democracy and an economic emancipation <laughs> of some sort, we've all moved to the burbs. Mm. And uh, we are losing touch. And we don't have that original connection with the with what made the drum generation the drum generation because they still went back to those areas. They were part of those communities. People came to their doors and said, did you hear what has actually happened? They knew about planned protests. They knew about what the community was feeling at the time. They had their pulse on uh, the heartbeat of those communities. Mm. Sadly, we don't have that anymore because we are living in high-walled 
um, complexes, we don't know our next door neighbors, and we are part of that process. So we are finding ourselves um, swallowed yeah. by the social media interaction that kind of then defines what ends up in our news. And that is said. Yeah. I really, really think that as an industry, as we move forward, we need to recheck ourselves and um, place things in context and not go with the wind because what happens in South African media sometimes is that we are in this echo chamber. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this is what uh, EWN reported, then Absolutely. SAFM follows up, and then the papers did this, and then we are all basically uh, trapped in that um, same narrative. So it's around finding that balance. But it also comes because we are under pressure with fewer journalists, mm. it becomes an easier source of information. Mm. Um, uh, Portia, uh, uh, this echo chamber, it's there. We know it's there. We are victims of it. Uh, the State Capture Commission of Inquiry is everywhere. Um, on the one day of reporting, the day of the Cynthia Stimple, ev almost every single publication and broadcaster had the same headline. So we're, we're not even repackaging content for different audiences. We are, so, are we, Portia, are we so into being part of this hashtag conversation and for us to trend that we're, we're forgotten the needs of our audience? Absolutely, I, I agree. And it's, it's one of the challenges um, that we're having in the media space, especially in radio, um, because, I mean, we're dealing with half hourly and one hour um, uh, deadlines. So it leaves very little time for us to actually go deeper into the story and actually also just try and find ways of um, framing the story. Because yes, headlines are, you know, are wonderful things. You know, we, we, we believe that they get people to tune in and listen to what we are reporting on. But there's a lot of, uh, of issues beyond the headlines mm. that we should be focusing on. And, but because of constraints of time and the limited space that we have to tell the stories, uh, unfortunately, we get trapped into, into mm. this, this echo chamber. But I also think that um, it's important for us as journalists to find ways of doing things differently. You know? um, and I think that, especially for radio journalists, you know, doing research ahead of time, like if you know that um, someone is going to appear at the uh, Zondo Commission, do a little bit of research ahead of time. See what the issues are, so that even as um, he or she says some sensational things, you can back up um, that sensational headline with actual stuff, you know, actual meaty, uh, comprehensive report on what the issue mm. really is. Mm. So I think that if we think about changing the routines, um, as journalists, not necessarily always following. I mean, one of the routines that we do is we follow political leaders, and during an election, we actually believe that we are doing the right thing. And yes, we are doing the right thing, but can we take the citizens along? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, it's always easy to follow those people because they are in our faces, they are everywhere, um, and it's easy to follow them, but can mm -hmm. we also just go and find those citizens and talk to them? Mm -hmm. So it is really, really a major challenge. Um, Stephen, just drawing on what, what Portia said, she talked about beyond the headline. You sit in a very important space Monday to Friday, 6 to 9. You, lit, you, you set the agenda not only for your own station, but for the kind of conversations that are going to happen through the day. How important is beyond the headline for you? And how do you, when you're prepping for your 6 to 9, how do you prep 
um, this content for this audience of yours? So, so I'll say a few things that affect, affect the show that I do. Kravani wants me to mention the fact that I slept in and she did it this morning. Um, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, so, so, so there's several things that have happened. And I think the one thing we mustn't forget is the context, context in which we're in. And by that I mean radio reporting and as a society. And let me give you an example, if I may just talk briefly from my own history. When I started the Midday Report, for example, and I took over from the legend that is Chris Gibbons, um, we did roughly two out of the ten slots would be politics or related to stuff in the ANC. By the time when Ntlantlenene was removed on the 15th of December, it started to move to four slots out of the ten. By the time Pravin Gordon was fired as Minister of Finance, it was in eight slots out of the ten. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the same has happened with radio reporting, I think. And we can't avoid that. And I would argue the same thing has happened in Britain in the last ten, two years as well. That the space for other stories has, you need to be literally the size of Esadameni. You know, nearly a hundred, over a hundred people have to die. Mm -hmm to be a story that's not related to the power struggle in the ANC to get into a bulletin. I mean, that's what it boiled down to by the end of 2017. None of us want to be in that situation. I mean, let me just make that point, is that if I could do a show that had a lot more light and shade and would have serious stuff and lighter stuff, I would. I think that's a much better listen. And I know audience research at <clears throat> one or two other places I've worked for um, <laughs> suggested that if you don't do enough light, people move away. Mm -hmm. And the same happens for radio bulletins. And I can't imagine what it must be like particularly for a music station where it's fun and da-da-da-da-da and buy a pink toothbrush and then suddenly it's, you know, an Esadameni story followed by an ANC infighting story followed by a fight over the Reserve Bank followed by a fight between Musime Mani and the rest of his party um, and, then, and then, you know, back to the pink toothbrush I mean, those things are really hard to program in a way that you can provide content and I think that's really important um, In terms of the echo chamber the, the, so I agree that we report in an echo chamber I'm also worried, and I think it was Adam Khabib who first said this, but I think when I asked him about it later, he said that maybe it hadn't been him, so maybe I am wrong. But, <laughs> but it was during 2017 when someone first said this, and I think it was him, where if you look at the states and you've got Fox versus CNN, right? Fox, Fox viewers uh, voted for, vote for, for Trump and CNN viewers basically voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, and there are certain elements of that division in our society in terms of media. And I mean, it's easier to, it's easy to, to sort of oversimplify this, but, but for example, some people do Santon, some people do other parts of the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like really important that as a country we agree on the same set of facts. Mm. Um, and so on one level, I have absolutely no problem with media organizations all having different leads in the nine o'clock news bulletin. And in another way, I have a massive problem with it. Um, so you want diversity of voice, but you want people to agree on the same set of facts too. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I think that we're going in different directions all the time. And I think maybe that's just what life is. Um, I would also say that one of the things that you used to be able to do, and I think there might still be space on it now, is for a reporter with a little bit of time, which they never have, um, to take a story and build on it. So I remember, if I may again use myself, when the rates hostel story happened, you know, the all-white hostel, and I couldn't get over the fact it was all-white, so why was it? And I phoned the former vice-chancellor, and he said this happened and that happened, that a campaign to stop a new policy had been run by the Freedom Front Plus. And then, then two days later, Winnie Buddy Cazella Mandela was speaking at an ANC press conference, and I got her to comment on it, because the Freedom Front Plus was in it, was, had a minister in government at the time. The deputy minister of agriculture was Peter Mulder. And that like, gave a story about a hostel in the Free State 
like Winnie Manikazela Mandela, suddenly is national politics. And I think you need to find those linkages. Mm. I think that's how you do stories that people don't do. You know, someone could easily have seen the press release about the first court challenge about people being taken out of Esadameni and to, into things. And then, you know, the, the judge ruled it wasn't urgent. I mean, I don't know how that judge feels now. But, but um, so, so the point I'm making is that someone did that story yeah. or might not have. But when that person does do that story, then they're the obvious person to stay in charge of that story. So yeah. those are my thoughts on that. Very quickly. Very quickly, sorry. <laughs> quickly. Um, one of the saddest things, though, around life is a Dimeni, and it wasn't during my career as a radio journalist, and I was now an online journalist, readers were not reading it. Yeah. Despite how painful a history or oh, our presence it was, and the life that was lost, and how negligent our government was, people were not reading it. And I think that is another conversation that we mm -hmm. never have around, even though as media houses we want to push what we think are important issues, the South African public doesn't always react to it. And they do go for the Ace Mahashule versus Ramaphosa, they do go for Ntlantlanene being fired, but actually the stories around the human beings and how their lives are actually being affected, the South African audience doesn't always react to it. Mm. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we've run out of time. So we, we're actually now going to open up to the floor. So we have a quick Q&A session. I would have loved to continue uh, for another hour or so. Um, so we're going to, how does this happen? Do, do, do we just circulate the mic around? Okay, so the hands here went up first, one, two, the gentleman here on my left, three, and then behind you, four. There's a hand right at the back, five. I spot full Malefe in the crowd. Good morning, sir. He's <laughs> a former boss. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you. It's Mike Lunika. My Shatsi, you mentioned the fact that the journalist in the newsroom has dropped from 10,000 to 5,000. Then one begins to think that uh, how had that compromised the newsroom? And uh, also, Porsche has also mentioned that uh, they are overstressed in terms of working. And uh, therefore, it tells that uh, there must be a, a, a direct consequence to the production of those uh, news department. Thank you, Mike. Uh, the next question. Oh, uh, okay. So after you, sir, we have to go to the hand on the left, yes? Please go ahead. Um, I, I would like to address this to Portia. Your uh, comment that you only have four minutes is very valid. Uh, interestingly, because it's radio, I would expect a great deal of Vox Pops. I would like to hear people commenting against your stories. I don't. Um, and I also would point out that I think that radio, because who's the star in a kaya, is, is the music. Uh, you only have four minutes, but you do have podcasts, you have, have your website, you have a huge resource to use to point people to, and the voice to point people to, to go and look at greater depth. We're a breaking news medium, not in terms of a public broadcaster, but certainly in terms of a commercial broadcaster, but you still have access to all of that in-depth reporting, and we don't use it. Thank you. The hand on the left there. Good morning. Um, I'm not going to direct my question to any particular person, but I was hoping that you'd say something about what 
I'm perceiving as opinion journalism that's on the rise, mm -hmm. especially on social media spaces where um, the principles of objective reporting and non-biased reporting seem to be flying out the window and journalists are just throwing their opinions as if it's, if, even if they have the facts to support those opinions, but it's almost like it's my opinion, I'm an important journalism, therefore what I'm saying is right and certain aspects of the story get lost because the journalist is focused. What, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you very much. The hand on the left here, gentleman on the left. Hi, um, I'd like to make a few comments about um, some things that I wish we would discuss. The setting of stories in the context of South Africa given the blight of history. Um, I'll make an example about that. Um, we sort of have a line between who's the hero and who's the loser in South Africa. You look at cases like Steinhoff, and then you look at when it is certain politicians who do wrong, how we report on those things. And things such as the mythologies of a nation state, um, it seems every media house is comfortable to refer to a former deputy president as former president. I'll tell you who, F.W. de Klerk. He's a former president of a pariah state, not of a democratic South Africa but every media house is comfortable to call him former president. Um, the other thing is how we locate South Africa in the global arena as an African country. We know more about Britain and the US than we do about Libya, Sudan, and all of our African countries. Thanks. Thank you very much. And the, the, I think there was a hand right at the back, yes. I think that's our, our last question, and then the panel will answer before we close. Our um, panel is very short. There was a comment made about social media and how journalists run to social media for stories um, in terms of how harmful it can be to journalism. Um, one of the questions I have is, should we not be using social media to sort of enhance our journalism, to find user-generated content that we then still do our jobs as journalists to verify that content um, and mm. use that to improve our journalism? Um, because we obviously also can't be everywhere all the time. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, let's go with the big, uh, from the beginning. Mike, um, your question was to Mishlatsi and Portia. Um, the, the, a significant drop in the number of journalists. How does this compromise the newsroom very quickly? So quickly, for me, it's diversity of skill. Um, I think it's for any newsroom, you need to have a good balance of uh, a senior journalism group, a senior team of journalists and a junior one so that they can be what Portia was talking about, a skills transfer, mentorship, learning, depth, and all of that. That is quite important. The second issue is diversity in terms of where each and every one of us comes from, right? That is quite crucial. If you can now only have six reporters as opposed to 10, uh, that is limited in terms of the kind of uh, stories that you're able to do. We don't have specialized beats anymore. We, I used to be a health reporter and I loved being able to specialize and then move on and then I became a politics reporter. That doesn't exist anymore. Every single reporter needs to be able to do uh, what is necessary. I have had situations where, for example, you know, I've had to throw very junior reporters into very 
complex stories, but simply because I didn't have uh, the required skill within the newsroom, I would send that person there. I think the last thing is just around just having time to focus on features. Because our diary is so busy every single day, you know, you might have great ideas about driving to a show where and doing a particular story, but because every single day we're competing, this month we had the flu. I think there was a point in my newsroom where four people were out and I was just wondering, how are we going to fill that four minutes? It felt like a lifetime because now four people were sick and we were out. There was nothing else we could do. And those are the daily struggles that we have to face every day. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Masatsi, but one thing that I also want to add is um, the fact the most difficult part as well is that when you have this small, uh, you know, newsroom and um, you've got people with skills, um, they also get poached. So you're back at square mm -hmm. one. Yeah. So that's just what I really wanted to add. While you have the mic, um, the gentleman here talked about the role of Vox Pops in your four-minute bulletins to have more voices of the people. And because you have the challenge of four minutes, why not use the website and your podcast to extend your stories? Yeah, so uh, that, that's also one of the challenges of resources that I spoke about. At, at KFM, we don't even have news on, on the website because we just cannot afford to have journalists who, who can run with, the, with news on, on the website. And we try as much as we can um, to, to, to have Vox Pops. And recently, um, before the elections, we used to have long-form um, news reports on, on weekends, just in an effort to you know, st stretch ourselves a little bit and have more voices. Um, but we also had to pull that back because of resources. So, yeah. And just to add on that... Hang uh, on. Sorry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> just to add on what Portia is saying, the other factor is that data has not fallen in South Africa. Mm. We think that people have access to websites, but people are not choosing to spend their hard-earned data money on actually going to websites and listening to podcasts. So it still limits the, the kind of community you will have accessing websites. Mm. Yeah. The next two questions are coming to you, Stephen. I'm combining both the social media questions, and I want you to answer it because in 2012, when I first set in for you, media report, I didn't have a Twitter account, and you were flabbergasted. <laughs> and I subsequently got a Twitter account. <laughs> and, and you're um, younger I'll, than me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so the, both the ladies here on the right, they talk about opinion journalism yep. in social media, journalists whose principles are kind of, uh, you know, not in play when they're in play on, on social media. And, and, and the second point is using social media to find content to enhance your journalism. Yeah, so, so I mean, a lot of things. I mean, firstly, let me just look at the, at the, the issue of finding social media to enhance journalism. Like, it, it can and it can't. Um, I get really worried that we're led by Twitter. Mm -hmm. Twitter is often dominated by the extremes. The country, as the results have shown of the election, is really a country in the middle, really. If you, look, if you accept that the ANC and the DA are sort of the middle, I mean, a very broad middle, um, that the extremes aren't the Freedom Front Plus and the, and, and the EFF. Um, <clears throat> I would say also that you've always got to verify, and I mean, I, I sort of use the phrase, and I agree completely with what Maklatsi said about, you know, you, radio news is often the first verifier of whether something on Twitter is true or not. Um, and I think that's really important, and I think we shouldn't be led too much by social media. I think we need to do our own things. I do think as journalists, and I realize this is contestable, but I do think we're allowed to lead the agenda. Frankly, that's what we're paid for, um, is to lead the agenda sometimes, and to find those stories and ignore social media. Um, in terms of, of, of opinion and context, oh, man. It's complex because every single person wants followers. That's what Twitter boils down to. Um, 
The other thing is that facts are boring and facts are free. Uh, there are, we can argue about news, about um, paywalls for website content and stuff, but facts are pretty much free. And so in a situation like that, the only way to build up audience is to add something to the fact. And you can add analysis and you can add opinion, and the line between them is both thin and very broad at the same time. Um, and I think that that is really hard. I, I'll tell you one thing that's become much harder in radio news as a reporter is that some of the stories that we need to do are really complicated. So Mzunele Mani once took a dossier that had come under his doorway, he said, about Kenneth Brown, who was the head of procurement at the Treasury, and handed it into the Hawks. How do you deal with a story like that? Mm. I mean, Mzunele Mani finds shocking information about Kenneth Brown. You don't know that. Mm. The man's obviously agendered, in my view. He knows that I think that of him. Um, so what do you do? How do you explain that in 40 seconds? You can't. Mm. May I respond to the FW de Clark thing very, very quickly. quickly? Very quickly. So I think you raise, you raise such, an, such an interesting and, and complicated question for journalists. Um, I can't disagree with you at all. Of course I agree with you that he was the leader of a pariah state. But I would say two things. Firstly, one of the compromises of 1994 was that the ANC refers to him as a former president. And so does our state. And if our government refers to someone as a former president, I think it's very hard for us not to. I think, I think that we will be accused of all sorts of things if we did. Whether, whether that's the right choice or the wrong choice, I don't know. But I can tell you it's very and hard. And time to... is up. Okay, just very quickly. We, I don't think we as a media organization can go against the state on issues like that. Yeah. I think we have to go with that. And then the second thing is that Chalema Mutlante was a, he ended as a deputy president too, and he's also called Mr. President, president. now. No. I'm the worst journalist who cannot keep to time yours. One of your questions I, has to be answered, but literally in 30 seconds. Okay. And I'm really sorry, because it's such a great question. Would love to cover Africa. Africa is really expensive, and I'm telling you from somebody who spent their whole career covering the continent. It is a very difficult space to cover. Something as simple as trying to get a visa to the DRC yeah. costs you something like 5,000 rands. To actually go and live in a hotel in Congo will cost you 5,000 rands a night. So that is the reality of trying to cover the continent. So we rely on agencies, and agencies, their focus right now is on Brexit, is what's happening in Europe, and maybe there's less and less reporting on uh, the continent, and that is why we don't find the continent as readily, uh, news about the continent as readily available on our platforms as we should.